Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, I'm joined by Richard Sarkis, serial entrepreneur and executive chair and co-founder of Reonomy, a commercial real estate data and analytics platform. Since inception in 2013, the company has raised over $130 million in equity from leading industry investors like Georgian Partners, SoftBank, City Ventures, Bain Capital Ventures, FinTech Collective, and many more. Rich is also a proud graduate of our very own Wharton School. In this episode, we discuss his journey as a repeat entrepreneur, exciting stories and challenges of building Reonomy from the ground up, how he thinks about company culture and why it is extremely important, transitioning from CEO to executive chairman and what this entails, navigating COVID, Reonomy's take on the state of the U.S. commercial real estate market, founder advice and takeaways after almost two decades of entrepreneurship, and a whole lot more. Now let's dive into a really fun conversation with Rich Sarkis. Rich, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Uh, How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I am uh, doing well, as well as can be expected in these crazy times, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we're, we're doing this remotely, but uh, it actually works out pretty well. And I should say also welcome back home because we do have a Wharton alum joining us and it's always extra special when that happens. That's right. I mean, we were chatting before and it reminded me just how long ago that was. But yes, <laughs> I am a proud Wharton alum. So Rich, we can get started maybe by hearing a bit about your background. Maybe you can tell us how you got started and how you got to this current role. Sure, sure. So you can't tell from my accent, my wife laments that I don't look or sound like James Bond, but I was born and raised in London in England. But I came to the US many moons ago for college. And that's really where I uh, caught the entrepreneurial bug. I started my first business while I was a rising uh, junior at Williams College. This was pre-dot-com bubble bursting, just to give you a sense of how long ago that was. But, you know, sort of that generation of companies sprouting out all the time. And it was actually a pretty successful business. Ran that one for a number of years. It sprouted off a number of uh, offshoot businesses. And then I sort of thought to myself, I think similar to you, now or never in terms of going to business school, or else it's not going to make much sense. And plus, I had the added impetus of I had a great college education, but it was a liberal arts college education. So there was no finance, no business sort of grounding. And, you know, in retrospect, I said, you know, my businesses were successful, but maybe they would have been more successful had I gone to a Wharton or had a finance degree or something like that. So this is back in 05, went to Wharton, frankly, thinking I might stay only a year out of the two years, maybe I'll meet a new co-founder or two, start a new business. That's really what I'm passionate about and then sprout off. But back then, I don't think Wharton looks like it does today in terms of the entrepreneurial ecosystem that's there. There were some, certainly, I'm not saying there was any, but it wasn't what it is today. And so pure option-based reasoning, didn't really find anybody. Pure option-based reasoning, decided to go into management consulting for a while. Again, thinking I would surround myself by smart people and sprout out and do my own thing. 
a little while later. And so ended up graduating in 07 and going to work at McKinsey in New York. Did that for far longer, frankly, than I thought I would. I thought, again, I'd stay a year and a half, maybe two, and go off and build my next company. But almost four and a half, four years later, I was still there, just gotten promoted to associate partner. And that's, I think, when I had my wake up moment that I had to uh, go back to doing what I was really passionate about and frankly, good at, which is building companies from the ground up. And that company ended up being and becoming Reonomy. So in hindsight, you think Wharton and McKinsey have made you a better entrepreneur? I certainly think there are some things that I learned across both Wharton and McKinsey that have been invaluable. To name a couple, I think, well, Wharton, certainly the connections you make there are pretty unparalleled and they are deep. And I'm still in touch with many Wharton classmates and frankly, turn to them at times when I have big strategic decisions that I'm wrestling with that maybe I don't want to go to my board with or investors. I don't mind stubbing my toes in terms of talking to my friends about that. That's certainly one. In terms of the classes, maybe I wasn't the most attentive during the classes. And I think I was over-indexing, if I'm honest. And in hindsight, now I can say it. I think it's been long enough that you know I over-indexed more on building meaningful connections. That said, I think it's really at McKinsey where the hard skills, so to speak, really got sharpened and honed. And I'm talking anything from quantitative modeling to know how to build a budget for my company from the ground up, right, bottoms up, and make sure it makes sense and it's informative, to communication. That's communicating up to investors, board, communicating to my peers, communicating to customers, communicating to the rest of the team, et cetera. Those are all things that were particularly helpful that I learned during my stint at McKinsey. So tell us a bit about Reonomy. I mean, now it's been close to a decade since you launched. Yeah, company. yeah, it's been a, it's been a long time. So Reonomy is a commercial real estate data and analytics company at its core. And what's interesting is I knew nothing about commercial real estate when I started the company. I didn't even think about commercial real estate. I lived in a multifamily rental building and I worked in an office building, and that was it. That was my intersection with the world of uh, commercial real estate CRE. But as I met my co-founder, I was actually introduced by a venture capitalist that I had known and I still know for a long time. I met him when I was starting my first company at Williams. When I met Charlie, my co-founder, I was struck by three things. One, the sheer size of the asset class. Again, I hadn't thought about it, but you've got trillions of dollars of value at stake on the debt and equity side. A lot of big stakeholders, not just the landlords and the owners and the retailers and the tenants, but insurance, private equity cares about it, hedge funds. I mean, you name it a company of a certain size intersects and interacts with commercial real estate. So that got me excited. But the second thing is that despite that sheer weight and gravitational pull, I found it to be a real data and analytics backwater. There were a lot of inefficiencies. The way in which people did business and did their jobs was very inefficient. And so there was opportunity there, right? So as an entrepreneur friend of mine said, one of the big mistakes you can make is develop a really cool solution that doesn't really have a problem. So I saw a lot of problems in, in this space. And then the third thing is there hadn't been much of any real technological innovation. There had been quite some innovation on the residential space, Zillow, Trulia, Redfin, et cetera. But on the commercial side, and we define commercial as anything that's not a single family home, there hadn't been that level of innovation. And so those three things really got me excited. And so we decided to co-found Reonomy to really leverage technology on the back end in a very heavyweight way to collect and cleanse and validate data that was out there 
in the public domain, third-party data providers, et cetera, but very unstructured and messy, et cetera. So really leverage technology on the back end to clean and cleanse and collect that. And on the front end to leverage modern, intuitive, elegant user interface and design to deliver insights to those users, primarily brokers, lenders at the banks, investors, even service providers in a way that was easy to consume. So that typically means a web-based product, typical SaaS product. And that's what we did. And we uh, were off and running back in 2013. And so tell us maybe about the initial days in terms of actually building this product and hiring your initial... Initial days, I had a big set of hair and then everything (laughs) fell out when when the stress hit me. For those those listening, you you have a different haircut these days. Yes, quite different, as in no hair. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, jokes aside, yeah, those early days were fascinating. One, I was sort of drinking from the fire hose, learning about this space. And the way I did that was trying to be humble and just listen to those customers. And we were lucky in that we were able to get a lot of access. And strangely, the way you get access is just if you're willing to listen and you don't go in the door saying, hey, I have something that's going to change the way you work and that you know, you've never seen anything like it before. That's often a pitch, right? But what's embedded in that pitch, I find psychologically is, it's often received as, let me tell you why you're stupid because you've been doing this wrong this whole time. And I'm going to, I, as somebody who knows nothing about your space, even though you've been doing this two decades, I'm going to tell you how to change what you do. That typically is how it's received, even though that's not how it's broadcast. So we just went in and just say, just tell me about your day from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, like, you know, what works, what doesn't, what's frustrating, et cetera, really absorbed it. And that's where we really honed in on those features, that feature set, the data sets, et cetera, that were most impactful. And the other thing is focus with a capital F. We focused not just on features and on data sets, but also on location. We only built the product for New York City initially, which was both a great decision and also a harbinger of doom a little later on, and I'll get to that. But it was enough to sort of prove that as the VC saying goes, the dogs were eating the dog food. We had the loan origination team at JP Morgan leveraging it. We had the analyst at Tishman's Fire using our product. We had the brokers at Cushman Wakefield, CBRE, JLL, all using our product. And that's where we knew there was a there there. And then the impetus was how do we scale this to actually cover the rest of the country, to have more data, et cetera. And that's where we raised our first real meaningful round led by Bain Capital back in, I think, uh, end of 2014, beginning 2015. And at that point, when you're really just creating this from scratch, did company culture ever cross your mind? Did you ever consider what kind of company culture you yeah, wanted to have? And, and company culture has evolved because company has evolved, right? When we started, it was four dudes working out of our version of a garage. Our version of a garage was a overflow supply closet on 30th and 8th in New York City that another startup had and just said, hey, this has a window. I think we can get some suckers to pay us some rent for this closet. And we were those suckers (laughs) and we loved it because it was our own space, even though it was, you know, barely 150 square feet. But back then culture was, look, you just do what it takes. Everybody wears all the hats. There's no ego. And we were just grinding it out, you know, know, quasi-stealth mode to sort of build that beta version of the product. And then as that sort of founding team, essentially, because even the first one or two employees who are not founders, like in a sense, they are founders. We always call them like the fifth beetle or whatever. 
as you start to then scale and we get more institutional funding and you are attracting talent that frankly are like, wow, these people have actually a legit resume and they want to come and work here and do this. You have to really pay a lot of mind and attention, especially as the CEO, as to what kind of culture you want to build. And it's tough because everybody is different. Everybody has different things that make them click, et cetera. And it starts at when you meet them, at an interview, to how you onboard them, to all that stuff. You retain them, how you, in some cases, fire them and let them go and all that stuff. And so that's probably been my biggest learning as an entrepreneur over the years is really pay a lot of mind and attention to the culture you're building. And it starts with you and how you conduct yourself within the office, how you espouse the values that, similar to how you build a product from scratch, your value system and the actual values that you have as a company, you're defining them as the founder and then hopefully espousing them so that others uh, latch onto that as well. And your role has also evolved along Mm -hmm. with the company, right? You started as CEO, but now you're chairman. Right. Yes. And, and Jeff Bezos stole my move. I saw, you know, <laughs> two ago. but yes, I built and ran the company for a number of years, as we're saying, close to a decade. And interestingly, it's very appreciate your question around culture and all that stuff. I find myself as we scaled past the hundred person, 150 person, you know, towards 200 people mark that I was spending a lot of time dealing with things that both I didn't really have energy and passion for, and I also felt that I couldn't really move the needle on. And so I was lucky enough to be introduced to Bill, who's our CEO, when I was first starting the company. First of all, as a sort of a mentor who'd been in the fintech space before fintech was even a word, he was one of the founding executives at Capital IQ that sold to S&P many, many moons ago. And then he went to McGraw-Hill Financial, had a few stints at startups, et cetera. And so I stayed in touch with him over the years. And then about three, four years ago, convinced him to join our board at Reonomy. And we really clicked, hit it off. He added a lot of value to the board. And then about, I guess, when was it? A year and a half ago now, almost two years ago, convinced him to join full-time Reonomy initially to focus on the enterprise part of our business as sort of call him president, COO. And then as the months became quarters, I was like, wow, this is great. I can give him more and more and more of this stuff, meaning the day-to-day running of the operations, making sure the trains leave on time and everybody is sort of focused on what it is we need to do quarter by quarter. And I can focus more on the strategic direction. I can focus more on big clients, partnerships, investors, et cetera, as well as sort of making sure that I maintain the true north of the company in terms of like, you know, where we're headed. And so Yeah, about a year ago now, I transitioned to executive chairman, uh, still full-time involved in the business, but a different role than certainly the day-to-day CEO, frankly, what can also be the day-to-day CEO grind, especially when you start from the ground up. And so would love to hear kind of a a breakdown of the products that you offer now, because I know data has also grown significantly. So we have three main sort of groups of products. One is really the offshoot of that first product we built in New York City. It's web-based applications, right? So now it's no longer just a New York City product. The easiest way to think about that one is it's a nationwide Zillow-like product, but for anything that's not a single-family home. So if you want to search for, if I'm an investor and I want to search for three contiguous lots that are zoned in a specific way that I can join and build a multifamily rental building, you can enter those parameters into the Rianmi web app. You can search visually and graphically 
and it'll do that for you. And that's been a very successful product as a lot of users across small, medium, large firms leveraging it all day, every day. That's sort of number one group of product. The second is data. What we found is that the secret sauce we developed, which is that engine I talked about on the back end that takes all this data, normalizes it, validates it, fuses it together, ended up being incredibly valuable, not just to us, but to other companies. And the way it was valuable is twofold. One is if we could take that data, not just the raw data, but now the reonomy data, the analogy I always draw here is a chef in a restaurant, they will buy a whole bunch of ingredients from different purveyors, et cetera. But as a diner, I'm not going there to eat the raw ingredients, right? I want the recipe. I want the, I want the cake. I don't want just a bag of flour, chocolate chip, and butter. And so the Reonomy data feed products were born out of that. And so we have a class of products. They're available via API. And, and we actually have product teams that just focus on them, even though it's just an API. It doesn't have a graphical interface. They focus on that as a product with documentation, the way you interact with it, et cetera. So that's one part of that data feed product. And the other one is the ability to cleanse data. We actually have productized that, again, via API so that other big banks like JP Morgan can take their data, run it through our APIs, and then fuse it together and say, okay, now we've got a 360-degree view of the data based on this technology. And last but not least, and this is the latest group of products that we're developing, and we're just launching our first really go-to-market, actually next week, is around intelligence systems. So these are the analytic products, right? So you've got the web app, you've got the data, and then you say, well, what are the insights you can glean on top of the data? One example of that is we've always been really good at telling you everything there is to know about a building, a property. But what if you want to turn that on your head? and say, well, what can you tell me about this company or person and how they relate to one another and how they relate to property? So it's portfolio analysis. That sounds obvious to a layman or somebody who's not in the industry, but those listeners who who have experience will know that it's quite hard because a lot of the entities are obfuscated, different LLCs, SPVs, et cetera. And so there's this need to have a pretty complex knowledge graph on the back end that can deliver those insights to the users and see when there's a downturn in this type of market, what does this lender typically do? What have they done historically? What are they likely to do? What are properties that are likely to sell, likely to refinance? All those sort of analytics is that third big group of products that we've got. Rich, we're talking about a year into, obviously, this pandemic has affected everyone and every business. It has had meaningful effects on real estate, and it varies depending on the city and depending on the type of real estate. How has it affected your business, your clients? How have you experienced it? Yeah. So, I mean, it affected our business like it's affected a lot of other businesses in that in March, I made the decision to go, March of last year, 2020, made the decision to go fully remote. So our entire company is remote. We've got a small temporary office space in the city, but it's restricted to five or 10 people at a time. Right now, you have to sign up. There's all protocols. And frankly, it's not that used. So everybody is essentially remote. And and we have some people throughout the world at this point. And, And so that's how it affected us. It's affected our customers in a meaningful way, specifically brokerage firms that rely on the velocity of transaction leases. You know, very few companies are signing leases right now, even on the sales side. That slowed down pretty meaningfully. The one thing I would say is on the debt side, because of the historically low interest rates, 
there has been a lot of refinancing, et cetera. So there, uh, you know, that activity with the lenders and the mortgage brokers, et cetera, the capital markets groups within brokerage firms has seen some activity. But then you'd be surprised because other institutional investors have viewed it as, a, as an opportunity. And I would lump private equity, hedge funds have now come pouring in to this. And we've always had them as clients. But that part of it, I would call it the enterprise, the professional, the institutional clients has really come to the fore. And as for made up for us as a business, made up for some of the headwinds that we felt in other spaces. Fascinating. And so a couple of follow-ups to that. Are you seeing maybe a pickup now that the vaccine is starting to get to different places? And also, how are you expecting the commercial real estate market to develop and evolve in the next few years? Yeah, we have seen a bit of a pickup. And then frankly, as I mentioned earlier, to some extent in last year, the story of 2020 was some companies really started investing more in CRE data and, and analytics because what the pandemic did for them is shone a very bright light on, is my business efficient? Can I do this with data? Can I leverage technology to, to do these processes, these steps, et cetera, to make up for some of the other headwinds? This year, we have, and I would say going into Q4 of last year, we have seen some pickups in terms of net new clients coming into the space, again, wanting to revisit their data strategies and make sure that they are thinking about it the right way. And the other thing that's happened is CRE tech or real estate tech has been a very frothy, sort of hot subsector of the VC market. There's been a lot of money that's flowed in over the years. And I think, again, the pandemic, what that's done is shone a bright light on the business models of a lot of these companies to say, hey, do these businesses really need to exist? Is it mainly marketing razzmatazz or is there a there there? If there is a there, is it being run as a viable, sustainable business from the inside out? And so what that's done is helped to sort of clear and cut through some of the noise because what we were finding in 2018, 2019, and going into 2020, is the big decision makers at these big firms, whether they were the Cushman Wakefields of this world, the Wells Fargo's, the you know Brookfields, were sort of getting weighed down by the noise of all these different startups clamoring and saying, well, we do this, we do this, we do that, we do that. So that's sort of abated, I would say, pretty substantially and has helped business like ours that have been more established, that have been around, that have the funding and all that stuff to sort of say, no, we are an established business. Here are all the Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies that we do business with that partner with us uh, and have been for a number of years. And so that's really helped us as a business, I would say, and we're thankful for that. And so you've been around for about a decade. What's in store for the next decade for Reonomy? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we're particularly excited as are our clients about this last group of products around analytics, predictive analytics, intelligence systems, et cetera. We're just about to release our owner portfolio product to the market in a week or so. So we're very excited about that. And then we are firm believers that you know if we keep executing our strategy, this is such a big space that it, you struggle to find industries that are this big that have this much opportunity. And if you're able to not just say you're going to do stuff right through taglines and snazzy websites and all that stuff, but actually deliver on your promises, then there is a lot of value to be added. And so we think that the past decade was setting ourselves up 
for what we're about to deliver in this next decade in many ways. Rich, before we started recording, I mentioned that we have quite a few listeners who are either current entrepreneurs or aspiring builders. We'd love to hear some of your reflections as a serial entrepreneur and, and maybe some advice or biggest takeaways that you could share from the last few years. Yeah, my biggest takeaway is focus. And I mentioned this earlier, but focus with a capital F. I mean, I'll give you a concrete example. When I first met Charlie, my co-founder, there were myriad different things that we could do, both in terms of where to start from a data perspective, location, features, all that stuff. But it caused some tension between me and him because my biggest mantra was like, let's do less focus and build out from that. And, you know, they say strategy is not what you choose to do, but it's what you choose not to do. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's often lost because sometimes it can be intoxicating to go chase the next big thing because you've gotten good feedback from this one customer about this feature. And so the next thing you know, you start to extrapolate across all these different channels of feedback that you've gotten and you've built this sort of Frankenstein product or you view that your strategy is pretty complex. And I'm not saying that we have not sort of aired down that path a few times because it's hard to resist that. But I would say if you're an entrepreneur, either on your journey, thinking about your journey, focus is just really important and constantly reminding yourself that it's important, not just from a financial responsibility perspective and knowing that you've got finite resources, but also going back to culture and mission and vision. It helps the rest of the team, the rest of the company really understand what is what I talked about earlier, the true north. What are we really trying to do here? What are we not trying to do? So I would say that probably is my biggest takeaway for any aspiring entrepreneur out there. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. And Rich, before we let you go, we always love to ask all of our guests to tell us a bit about their hobbies. And maybe you can tell us how... Uh, you know, how you spend some of that time. Well, they're, they're different these days. I'll tell you that. They are different. <laughs> having been They've in, evolved. <laughs> in, in the Zoom world with two young kids and homeschooling and all that. Hobbies are few and far between, if I'm honest, right? I'll, I'll sometimes take out my car and, and go for a drive. And that feels like a hobby these days, something as mundane as that. But back when I do have a passion for food and cooking. And so, whereas I have not really been frequenting restaurants that much, I have really been cooking a lot. And so that probably is my biggest hobby and passion outside of family and work. And so, you know, I've dabbled with a lot of recipes. Some have failed spectacularly and some have, have been a hit. And my very patient family have been the test kitchen for me over the last uh, 12 months or so. What's, uh, what's been one of the biggest hits? The biggest hit that, I, that this recipe that I've sort of honed over the years is paella. I've always oh, been a fan man. of that dish. It's both hard and easy. Easy in that you can sort of make it up as you go and, and there's many different versions and whatever is fresh or whatever you want to put in. Hard to really get it tasting the way you want, but also cooked to perfection. So that's one that I continue to iterate on pretty aggressively. Rich's famous paella. Wow, well, one day, one day. <laughs> Well, now really fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And I'll do stop by Wharton when things get better. Uh, I'm sure future generations will love to see you. I have, I have been back a number of times, actually, in uh, guest appearances in a couple of real estate classes. I'm a big fan. Amazing. Amazing. Orich, thank you again. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 